For more than 25 years, Indiana Bible College has partnered with pastors, with parents, and with students from all over the world to train tomorrow's leaders today. As fall enrollment approaches, we invite you to check out what Indiana Bible College has to offer. Visit www.gotoibc.com. If you're not sure what we have, check out the Programs tab where you can find out more about the biblical studies, the missiology, and the worship studies programs that we have. If you're a college graduate, check out the one-year and two-year bachelor programs for accelerated classes that you can be a part of and earn a second bachelor in just a short time. If you're not sure how to go to the application process, check out the admissions tab where we spell out the entire process for you right there. Simple steps. We look forward to partnering with your pastor, with your parents, and with you to train the leaders of tomorrow at Indiana Bible College today. Some of the best things I've found in life come from someone telling me, hey, you should check this out. If you're enjoying these messages, why don't you share it on your social media? Be sure to tag us in your photo or post or use the hashtag IBC Chapel when you're telling somebody else, check this out. Today's message that you can share is a message entitled The Woes of the Waiting Room, preached by IBC student, Sister Jane Claire Turner. It is good to be in chapel today. Kara, what an incredible message. It touched my heart. Where's your heart at? Amen. Challenged me this morning. Um, Well, I've been in a unique position today. I don't think I've ever been the single solitary person standing in between all of my friends and Thanksgiving lunch. Um, So I will take that into consideration, but... um, So that is definitely on my mind, so don't worry about that. I'll do my best. But um, first of all, I'd like to thank student council and Brother Gallion and Brother Kilman and Brother Rodenbush and all the uh, teachers here and all that they pour into my life and to our lives. And a special thank you to Zach Ross for asking me to be here. Uh, I know I've known him for a very long time. We've been best friends since we were about 12 years old. And I got a good laugh in the other day, laughing at myself, thinking about if we went back and told ourselves, our little 12-year-old selves, that we'd be here today. Uh, we probably would have peed ourselves. <laughs> I got a good laugh out of that. But and I want to say a special thank you to my family back there. I see my Aunt Amy and my mom, my, my grandparents, and my grandparents that I'm sure are going to be listening to this eventually if they are not right now. But uh, I owe so much to them. I'm a very, I consider myself a very privileged person because of the sacrifice that they have made and the unconditional love that they have given and their wisdom and support. Um, so without any further ado, lunch is on the horizon. I'll take you to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 27, or just, just one verse. And it says, And as they were going down to the end of the, of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid thy servant pass before us. And he passed on. But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. So the title of my message today is The Woes of the Waiting Room. Now, before you're seated, if you would pray with me. 
Lord, I come to you knowing that you have all power in heaven and in earth. And I thank you for all that you are and all that you have done. I ask that you would come into this place, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Use me and anoint me to speak your words that we might be strengthened, challenged, and encouraged. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. Well, you can go ahead and be seated. Um, So this passage of Scripture has really been on my heart since about May. It just kind of stuck with me. It says, but stand thou still a while that I might might show you the Word of God. And I I think we can all agree that college is a pretty strange time in our lives. Um, (laughs) We come here and, you know, we are in high school and we think that we're transitioning into adulthood in high school. And we're not. We come here and we realize that we're really still kids and that uh, I don't even know if I want to be an adult anymore. And so, and we come here and we have these visions of what we think our lives should be. Or we have this calling and we have this, God is going to do this. Or I think this is where I want my life to go. Or maybe like Brother Zach said in prayer, that he didn't really know what God wanted him to do. He just knew that he needed to come here. And we come here with all these questions. And we think, well, I'm here you know, maybe this is, God's going to show me this now. And in missions conference last week at the Q&A, Brother Poitras made the point, and he said that there's, there's the promise, and then there's the fulfillment of the promise. And we like to think that it's kind of a straight shot from one to the other. He said, but what's in the middle is the preparation, and it doesn't look like what we think it should look like. And it doesn't, doesn't feel like what we want it to feel like, and it doesn't last in the time frame necessarily that we want it to. And this is really... What, what Saul was going through. Because in the, in the next chapter, in chapter 10 and verse 6, it says, after Samuel had anointed Saul, it said that after the Spirit came upon him, it said that he turned him into a new man. It said that in another place, he, turned, he gave him a new heart. And so that's where we're at right now. Because like Brother Zach said, he was preaching my message after prayer on Tuesday. He said, you know, I came here, I didn't really know what was happening, but I came here because God had to put me through some things. He had to change my heart, and he had to deal with some heart issues, like Sister Kara said, where's your heart at? And that's where we're at right here. And, you know, I've been dealing with this, and I was thinking about it over the summer and through the semester, and, and at the beginning of the semester in a homiletics class, Sister Natalie Warren preached on waiting on God. And she, she said something that really stuck with me. She said something about how we all have to do our time in God's waiting room. And that really resonated with me. And it gave me kind of a mental picture of what this really looks like. And my best friend from nursing school is here. And I'm so thankful that she's here. And we've been uh, finally been able to be in the same clinical group this semester. And uh, so typically every Thursday we're at the hospital way up at St. Vincent. And before we get to the elevators, every, every time we walk through the hospital, we have to pass this really large waiting room. And I think it's for surgery. I don't really remember. But it's really big, and there's usually not a whole lot of people there when we get there. But when we come down, there's families and all these different people waiting on loved ones or waiting to go back to surgery. And it just kind of gave me this picture of like, okay, maybe this is what IBC is. It's just one huge waiting room that we're all just trying to figure out what's going on. And... You know, waiting on God is a pretty familiar subject to us. We, we're, we're comfortable with it. You know, we don't really like to wait on God. It's painful. It's frustrating. But, you know, we get it. That's why we're here. And, uh, you know, it's what we're here doing right now. And it's not a new idea. 
but I've come to realize that waiting on God is not quite as simple as we like to make it sound, as I like to make myself think that it is. And through personal experience, God helped reveal to me three different challenges that we face in God's waiting room. And they're not necessarily in chronological order, and they're not necessarily exclusive to this time. And maybe it's more of a cycle that we go through, but I think there are three important things today that we need to address. And the first one is fear and anxiety. And you can usually pinpoint the people that are really fearful in the waiting room. You can, you can see them, they're pacing, they're, they're wringing their hands, they're, they're going back and forth, maybe they're crying, they're, they're, they're struggling because they're scared. And Saul dealt with this. In a few verses before our text, when Samuel tells Saul that he's going to be the next king of Israel, he says, and Saul answered him and said, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? He said, you know, what are you talking about? I'm the least of the least of the least of the children of Israel, and you're telling me I'm going to be king? That doesn't make any sense. And then in the next chapter, when they go to crown him king, they're looking for him to make him their king. It says, and when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should come thither. And the Lord answered, behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. He was hiding. He was scared and he was hiding from becoming the king of Israel. And you know, how often do we do the same thing? We start acting like Moses, standing before the burning bush saying, you know what, that's impossible. I don't know what you're talking about, but I can't do it. You got to find somebody else. He says, you know, that's impossible. I can't do it. I'm a nobody, but God, I'm scared. And sometimes I think we forget that our inability to complete the task on our own is exactly why God is asking us to do it in the first place. He says he wants us to rely on him so that he can demonstrate his power because it's not about us. It's not about me. End of story. It's just not. So while we're whining down here trying to, you know, say, God, you know, I can't do it. You know, I don't know how. It just, it doesn't make, he's he's saying, you know, it's not about that. He's trying to get us to realize that he can do it. Isaiah 40, chapter uh, chapter 40, verses 28 and 29 says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? The next verse says, He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Haven't you heard? Don't you know that the God you serve, your creator, has all power in heaven and in earth, and he doesn't get tired? He doesn't get worn out, but he gives strength to the weak? So eventually we learn this, and eventually we come to understand that God's in control and that he is going to take care of it. Eventually we come to that realization, and we learn to trust that he's going to work in us and through us in his perfect time. But unfortunately, we are imperfect and inconsistent people. And we can allow this trust to turn into something else. All while still claiming we're just trusting God to work it out. Which brings me to my second challenge. The second challenge we face in the waiting room, and that is comfort. And, you know, one morning I walked into clinical and I walked past the waiting room. And there weren't very many people in there. And uh, there's one guy, I think it was a guy, I couldn't really tell. Because they were all covered up with blankets. I guess the nurse had brought him some blankets or something, but he had found this really precarious position in one of the sorry excuses for a recliner 
that they have in that big waiting room because they anticipate people being there for a long time. And he was dead asleep. And I, it, was, it was probably a little shy of 6.30 in the morning. And I walked past, and I was pretty impressed. I was like, man, I wish, you know, I could get some sleep like that in a place like that, you know. But, um, and I thought, man, you know, how often do I fall asleep in the waiting room? You know, the story of David is possibly the longest and the most successful waiting period in the Bible. As David was anointed at such a young age, and it was years before he obtained the kingdom, and even years after that, before he united the kingdom and was king over all of Israel. But, you know, some of his greatest victories were while he was in the waiting room, when David could have been sleeping out in the fields with his sheep. When David could have been sleeping out in the fields with his sheep, relaxing, hanging out, reading a book, doing whatever, you know, he instead followed the orders of his father. He obeyed his father and went down to check on his brothers at the camp and to give him food. And you know what he did? He killed the giant. One of his greatest and most successful and most rehearsed victories happened when he could have been relaxing in the fields with a sheep, but he listened to God. You know, and I, I read an interesting passage the other day uh, about David, and it was in 1 Samuel chapter 27, and it's just after he had spared Saul's life for the second time. He could have killed Saul, and he didn't. And, you know, they part peacefully, you know, because Saul's like, okay, fine. I, don't, I guess I won't kill you. And in, David, in, in the beginning of the next chapter, it says, And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in the coast of Israel. So he goes to the king of Gath. And he asks for a place to stay. And he brings all these people with him. And, you know, Saul finds out and he says, okay, I, I'm not going to search for him anymore. I'm not going seek to seek for his life. And it says, skipped a few verses down, it says, and the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. And, you know, I don't really know if God told him to go there or told him to stay that long, but I read that and I was like, you know, I've never really noticed that before because that seems a little strange that David would go to the land of the Philistines and just hang out for like a year and a half. And I was just like, how often do we, we just, because of our fear, or because we get, you know, we go somewhere and we do this and then we get real comfortable. And then we just hang out there for a while. So we tell God we're going to trust him all while we're fluffing our pillows and gathering our comfiest and warmest blankets. You know, God, I'm going to trust you, but I'll just be right here. You know, and it, it just doesn't make any sense. We, we just get in this comfortable place. We get in this recliner and we snuggle up and we say, you know, God, wake me up. When, when it's time. Wake me up when, it, when you're ready. You know, because we do that because it's so much easier to commit our future to God than to act for him right now. You know, it's so easy to say, you know what, God, I'll do that. Yeah. You know, tomorrow I'll do that. Or, you know, 10 years down the road, I'll do that. But right now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm good. You know, and we, we, we turn off something in our brains. You know, and we, we drown out the voice of God with Netflix binges and our endless searches for entertainment and our, our seeking and doing the mundane tasks of everyday life, all in the name of rest and relaxation and necessity. You say, God, this is just what I have to do. I have to get this done. Or, God, I'm so tired. I'm just going to do this. You know, I'm just going to be here. And we just turn it off. And, you know, even if we do hear, we're not affected. 
is we're unwilling to move out from under the warm bed that we have made ourselves. You're sitting here, and you know in the winter when it's cold in your room, and you just do not want to get out of bed because you know that the cold air is going to hit you immediately. And we're saying, you know what, I know you want me to go talk to that person at my school to encourage the person sitting next to me in class or talk to, talk to somebody at work about God. But you know what, I, I'm too comfortable here. I'm scared. I don't, I don't want to get hit by the cold front. You know, and it was in the time that David could have been sleeping that he killed Goliath. And you know, what giants are still living in your life, in my life? What giants are we allowing to exist and to thrive because we are too comfortable to get up and do something, to get up and listen to the voice of God and do something for him while we're in the waiting room? So on the flip side of this is the third and final challenge that we face in God's waiting room. It is impatient determination and problem solving. So you can always spot those people that have just reached the point in the waiting room and they're fed up with waiting. They're just done. You know, I don't know, in a surgery waiting room, there's really not much you can do as much as a mom would really want to go back there and just finish the surgery and make sure everything's done right. As much as my mom would probably have wanted to do that. I had surgery when I was a baby and I'm sure the thought might have crossed her mind. Um, but, you know, you can't. But, you know, somewhere else you're waiting in a line at Starbucks and you're just done. You're thinking, you know what, maybe I can just get behind the counter and make my complicated order myself. I can get out of here. You know, and so you can always tell those people they're up and they're trying to get into everybody's business and solve the problem. And they're trying to understand what's going on. And this was Saul's downfall. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, it talks about how Saul was with 600 men. He had 600 men with him, and he was in a strait, and they were facing a giant Philistine army. And the Bible says that the Philistine army was in number as the sand on the seashore. And here's Saul with his really scared 600 men, and they're thinking, these Philistines could attack us at any moment. And, and according to uh, what Samuel had told Saul, Saul had to wait seven days for Samuel to come so that they could offer sacrifices to the Lord so that God would bless them and give them victory. And so Saul's sitting there with his 600 men, and Samuel's not there. And so he waits his seven days. And seven days are up, and Samuel's not there. And Saul's thinking, you know, any time now, these Philistines are going to come, and we haven't offered sacrifices to the Lord. And, you know, we're, we might not make it. And so he's thinking, you know, the logical thing to do would be to just go ahead, to just go ahead and offer sacrifices. You know, because then God would bless us. And then just in case, if the Philistines come, we'll have victory. And so he does it. He goes ahead and he offers sacrifices. And Samuel shows up as soon as he's done. And he says, what have you done? He says, thou hast done foolishly. And that right there is the moment that Saul lost his kingdom. And because Samuel said, you disobeyed God. You know, and, and I can't have a king that's going to dis disobey me. And that was the moment that Saul lost his calling. And God said, I'm going to find a man after my own heart. That's what happened. So in our determination to do what we feel God has called us to do, you know, God had called Saul to win victories for Israel. That's what he was supposed to do. So in his determination to do what he thought God was calling him to do, he disobeyed God and he sidelined his authority. And he missed the mark. He gave it all up because he wanted to know the answers. And he wanted to figure everything out for himself. So often this comes from the burning desire to understand how everything will work out. 
We get impatient and we get frustrated and then we try to problem solve our way into the perfect will of God like we think that it should be. So when God just really just wants us to be quiet, to listen, to trust, and to follow. Now, uh, at Marion, we have, it's a liberal arts college, so we have to take all these different classes about everything, you know, from anything you can think of. And so we have this one class called Discovering the Humanities. And we have to take two semesters of it, and Lel knows the struggle. Uh, She was in it with me last semester, and we had it in the afternoon, and she kind of kept me focused and kept me awake or at least entertained or something. But this semester I have it all by myself, and uh, it's at night, and it's a real struggle to pay attention. It's 6.30 to 8.30. It's a full two hours in there, and it's awful. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, I don't know if I was just more interested in the content last semester, but I just can't make myself pay attention this semester. But uh, I did catch one thing. (laughs) A few weeks ago, my literature professor was talking about a poet named John Keats. And uh, he was a young man. He died at the age of 25. And I, I can't really tell you much more about him because, you know, I wasn't paying attention. And, uh, but he did come up with this interesting concept that he applied to literature. And it's called negative capability. And he wrote it in a letter to, I think, his brother. And he simply defined it as this. He said, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, in mysteries, in doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. And I, that was the only thing that stuck with me that day. Because I was like, wow, what if I could do that? What if I could move forward? What if I could progress in my walk with God and, and towards my calling without any irritable reaching after fact and reason, any irritable reaching after all the answers, and sitting here trying to pe- put the pieces of a puzzle together that I can't understand? And the article I read about it said, a person's potential can be defined by, by what he or she does not possess. In this case, a need to be clever and a determination to work everything out. So it all comes back to humility. You know, what if I could give up my need to be clever? What if I could give up my determination to have all the answers and to figure it all out? You know, Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. You know, and I read that, and that kind of just hit me in the face. It's like, wow, the real only thing that I can really understand is the thing that we get in IBC classes all the time, that is God is God, and I am not. The understanding of the holy is not the beginning of understanding. It is understanding. And the only thing that I can ever really understand is that he is holy, and that I am not, and that I can't know the answers. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, I read it earlier, but I left out an important phrase. It says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. You know, not only can we only understand that God is holy, we can't even begin to understand his understanding. We can't even begin to search for it. We can't even begin to know all the things that God has in his control because he's got our whole world in his hands. And so this strength that comes, you know, the famous verse, a few verses later, it says, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But this strength and this power only comes after we come to the understanding that we cannot understand. 
That's it. So the music can come. I'm coming to a close. And so these challenges are not exclusive to this period in our lives. I don't, I don't believe that, you know, we get out of here and they're just going to be gone. But I do believe that this is the time where we find our way to address them. We find a way to recognize them and become accountable to what, to what we face. That, okay, this is my problem. And this is how I'm going to try to fix it. So, because this is not just about us being successful. And this is not just about us becoming the people that God has called us to be. And I just, if I give you a quick story, I was reading a book uh, called The Daughters of Islam about building bridges with Muslim women. I was reading it a couple years ago and there was, every chapter was about uh, a Muslim woman, a real Muslim woman that had come to Christianity. And so uh, I got to one chapter and it started out with an eight-year-old girl and her mom was coming to wake her up at five o'clock in the morning to, to pray. And so she wakes up and she's sleepy and she's following her mom. And she's, mom, why do we have to do this? I don't wanna get out of bed. And her mom says, you know, we just have to do it. And the little girl said, you know, I don't understand. God should be like daddy. When I talk to him, he answers me. He talks back to me. And she said something that will haunt me for the rest of my life. She said, I respect God. I honor him. But why doesn't he talk to me? This little eight-year-old girl who was just looking for a God that wanted to know her. Just looking for a God that wanted to her to know him and to have a relationship with her. And we know that God. We walk in relationship with that God every day. So this is, an, this is about the world of people desiring to know a God who loves them and who wants to know them and wants to talk to them. They just want to know that somebody cares. And so it's about ministering to those people because God has not called us to obtain a kingdom like he called David and like he called Saul, but he's called us to build a kingdom, to build his kingdom. And Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians Chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, and you guys can stand. It says, But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor, of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. We've come here because we feel a draw to be a minister of God. And this is what Paul describes is the ministry, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. And we're not going to understand how it's all going to work out, but the altar is open and the call is simple to come to a place of renewed commitment, to not capitulate to fear, to not fall into the trap of comfort that we so easily mislabel as trust, and to be humble enough to stop searching for all the answers. Making a commitment to listen and to not get ahead of God while, being af- while not being afraid to act. So if you would come, I just would like us to pray. Because the world is waiting on us as we are waiting on God. 
And are we, it's up to us to be prepared, to submit and to follow and to listen.